Hello, my fellow terrestrials. Coming to you from an RV deep in the Carolina mountains, welcome to the What If They're Wrong podcast, the podcast that wants you to question everything. Your reality is about to be shattered. Hello, my fellow terrestrials, and welcome back. We have a great episode up ahead. This episode was actually selected by you, the audience. I did a poll, and this episode is the winner. I'll do more polls in the future. This is the first uh, attempt. So I think uh, we're all going to enjoy it regardless, because I had a great conversation with Chris Sumner, and she runs Soul Sisters a uh, paranormal and ghost investigation group, and she has a doctorate, and she also goes about ghost investigations in a non-dramatized way. So everything that she does, she sets up cameras, sensors, everything like that, uh, records data around the area, making sure that there's no chance of something being picked up that is actually something else. So a lot of her findings are truly unexplained. So we're going to get to talking to her about that. But first, if you like the show and you like the content, if you could subscribe or follow, that way whenever a new episode drops, you'll know right away. It'll get downloaded. You'll be able to enjoy all the great content. I have a lot of great content coming out. So definitely subscribe. Also, if you can rate and review the show, be highly appreciated. Just helps out with the show. Let me know that you're liking it. So let's get with Chris Sumner and get a little spooky. And remember, question everything. Hello and welcome to the What If The Wrong podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah, and I'm joined today by Christy from the Soul Sisters Paranormal Podcast. Or she has a website too that has videos and everything. And uh, she and her sister set out on ghost investigations. I don't really like saying ghost hunts because it just sounds funny (laughs) or like cheesy, you know. So ghost investigations and paranormal investigations. So I'll introduce her now. Hello. Hi, Jeremiah. How are you doing tonight? Good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me. Yes. Thanks for coming on and speaking with us. I'm sure you got a lot of stories to tell us and talk about (laughs) oh yeah absolutely and i looked into some of your stuff but my audience obviously might not know so um if i ask something (laughs) it's for the good of everybody (laughs) absolutely let's let's do this so i wanted to start with because it's something that i don't hear a lot of in the paranormal sector but i think you touched on it a few times and uh that's like children ghosts and children spirits and have you encountered any and what is your take on on the whole thing with like kids because my brother he says the only thing that really scares him is like hearing little kids in horror movies or kids singing and uh so they definitely add like an extra element to the whole thing and uh so i just wanted to get your take on you know children ghosts children spirits and what uh, what you think it all entails? Absolutely. So um, to to answer the first question, yes, we have encountered uh, the spirit of children. Um, and and for me, when we go into these investigations, uh, again, Soul Sisters Paranormal is made up of myself and primarily my twin sister, but our younger sister and then some female family friends join us as well. So we're an all female group, and I think that an all female group um, tends to lead toward a little bit more empathy. I'm not going to say that we're empathic per se, but more empathy. And I think that allows children's spirits to be more comfortable um, a- around an all-female team, probably more so than they would an all-male team or a co-ed team. Um, so we have encountered children's spirits. One that really sticks out is when we were investigating uh, the Exchange Hotel in Gordonsville, Virginia. Now, this is a, uh, it was built 
before the Civil War as a hotel, a three-story hotel, um, because it sits right on a railroad junction there in, in Gordonsville. Uh, during the Civil War, it was recommissioned into a Civil War hospital that saw both um, Confederate and Union soldiers. And there's about 700 verified deaths during that conflict that happened in that hospital. So it's a very active location. But there's also the reports of a child named Jeremiah that inhabits that, uh, that hotel, so when we went it's there, there was me. it's not <laughs> it's not you. No. <laughs> um, so when we went to that investigation, there were five females there, and um, myself and my friend Kim, uh, we were the only two in the house at the time. The rest were in the summer kitchen, which is another building on the property. And so she and I were the only two people in in the actual hotel portion. And so we tried to make contact with with little Jeremiah, and so we sat in a hallway about we were probably about. 10 feet away from each other and so we were facing each other and we had our legs you know pointing outward and we had a glow-in-the-dark ball and we both had k2 meters in front of us and i said you know jeremiah if you're here will you light up the lights in front of me and i'll roll this ball down to kim and my lights lit up they indicated that some energy was acting on it and so i rolled the ball down to kim and kim asked the same question she said now if you're in front of me light up the lights in front of me, use your energy, and I'll roll the ball back to Christy. And so it did. So he did that. And we, we went back and forth with this game for probably about 15 or 20 minutes. And so just adjacent to that hallway was a bedroom where it was set up to look like an old-time hotel. And, and so we had a voice recorder on the bed in that room. And later on during the night, we captured a child's voice saying, Hi, this is my bed which does two things. One, it shows that there's a level of intelligence because I think he was speaking to the voice recorder saying, hey, why are you on my bed? This is my bed. And two, it validated that there was a child spirit there because we obviously have no children on the team. And so that was a very interesting, um, one, interaction, and then two, uh, a voice reco- uh, a recorder that we caught in the, uh, a recording that we caught on the voice recorder. Um, and so for me, when we, go, when we do these investigations, we go in with the premise really on three theories, right? That's, that spirits are here for, for three reasons. One, they have unfinished business. Um, there's something that has to be fulfilled before they can ascend to what's ever next. The second is fear of retribution, which I think this is why we see a lot of spirits in jails and prisons, because they're afraid of what's going to happen next based on the life that they lived on earth. And the third is they don't understand how to get to the next realm. And I think that's why we see children children a lot. Um, they, they may or may not know that they're actually dead, but either way, they can't find that light or they can't find the way to get to the next realm. And I think that's why they're there. Um, and so we have, um, you know, the Exchange Hotel was a great example of a child spirit. Um, we also communicated one in uh, Hales Bar Dam, which is located in Tennessee. Um, so we've had several instances where we communicated with children. Yeah, I always wondered, uh, what that all was all about like because like i said when i look into paranormal stuff and i haven't been doing it like all that long but a lot of times you just hear about like the older people like spirits and ghosts and uh not too much focus on like the kid aspect so mm-hmm. i wanted to get your take on that whole thing and then i saw you had a video on your website where you went to an elementary school mm-hmm yeah, yeah, Post Town Elementary in Post Town, Ohio. Um, <clears throat> that was interesting. Uh, you know, that um, a lot of the theories about why that elementary school is haunted is really based on one, Native American stories, and then two, uh, railroad accidents, train accidents that happened in close proximity to, uh, to that elementary school, really before the school was actually um, built. There was a couple of train accidents. Um, but we did have a lot of activity in that location. Um, honestly, I don't feel that anything that we were communicating with that night was a child spirit. Um, we captured several EVPs that were extremely interesting EVPs um, that seemed to in, uh, indicate an intelligent response, um, but none of them were children's spirits. Um, we think one was maybe a teenage girl, uh, and, and then the others were 
mostly what we feel were male, um, uh, like men. Um, those were a couple of the EVPs that we captured as well. So while it was an interesting experience, um, the, the, the indications that we got was there wasn't really a lot of children activity, at least on the night that we investigated. Um, but there was definitely something going on in that, uh, that elementary school. Yeah, when uh, I was watching it, the one part kind of freaked me out because I wasn't like, I think I went to do something else because I was like making dinner or something. And I look and there's like a painting of some kid that's like this. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. Yes, and I thought yeah, that they... was like something you caught on film and then I realized it was just a painting. Yeah, this little statue thing that he's got stuck in a corner. Um, and the weird thing is, is it's it's in this corner where you, when you turn left, like it's right there. So that when we were doing our walkthrough um, during the day, it scared the bejesus out of me. Um, you know, I actually said a couple of choice words because of it was sitting <laughs> there. Um, but yeah, it uh, it's definitely one of those things. It's like, why is this even here? It sits out right, right outside the doll room. Yeah, I just, uh, I looked over and I was like, oh my gosh, because <laughs> it looks creepy. So <laughs> it, it, like, It's very creepy in the day and more especially in the night. And then I saw, I uh, forget who was standing next to it, but I was like, it's right next to you. But then I realized it was just a painting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so Post Town is a, a very interesting location. And then um, I interviewed Jess King. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know if you know her, but. She, um, she's a medium and she went to a elementary school in Alabama and mm -hmm. they got a lot of like negative vibes from it. And, um, like they said, like a lot of bad stuff was going on there. Um, cause it was like, I guess like a church and then a school and I don't know how deep history. So it seems like a lot of places that have a lot of history tend to have, you know, ghost activity mm -hmm. yeah and, th and that's one of the really th that's one of the things that we love about what we do um, is because we get to go to these historical locations we get to have that very tactile experience with these locations that a lot of people don't really get the opportunity to enjoy um, you know not many people can say they've stayed in you know the Velisca Axe murder house or the Lizzie Borden house or the St. Augustine lighthouse but we get to actually do that and then what we want to do is really tell that historical narrative to our audience. Uh, that's why if you watch any of our videos, you know, the first three to five minutes is really a deep dive into the hist into the history. And then we couple that with the paranormal activity that we find in those locations. Um, so to your point, history to us is extremely important and really the catalyst as, as to why we do this. Yeah. So like, um, you have like some prisons and stuff on there and I wanted to talk about that too, because my fiance works for a jail and she's had some ghost experiences and it's not even an abandoned jail. It's still filled with prisoners. So, mm -hmm. but they seem to be, you know, a hotbed too, because you have inmates who kill themselves or get killed by another inmate or, uh, whatever reason. So, mm -hmm. uh, what kind of places prison wise have you been and, uh, what have you experienced? Well, coincidentally enough, I'm currently sitting in the historic Scott County Jail in Huntsville, Tennessee. Um, so this is a jail that was built in 1904. It was in operation as a jail until 2008. And then it sat vacant until last year when my business partner, Miranda Young from Ghost Biker Explorations, she and I formed a company called History Highways and Haunts, and we opened a museum as well as a paranormal research center inside this jail. And so to your point, when we first opened uh, last year in September of 2021, um, we were getting reports from deputies that used to work here saying, you know, when I worked in the jail, when there was inmates here, when I worked there, um, we would hear footsteps when all the inmates were in their cells. Uh, the elevator would start running up and down on its own when nobody was there. Um, we had a woman who was in dispatch. She got on the elevator one night by herself and something coughed in her ear. And she never rode the elevator again. So 
Jails and prisons are definitely, in my mind, a hotbed for paranormal activity, simply because, to your point, there is a lot of violence, there is suicides, right? There is natural deaths, especially in a jail like this one, which has this long history spanning almost 120 years. Um, there were natural deaths. Um, we had one of our sheriffs in 1925. He was actually shot and killed right here in the front door, and it's still an unsolved murder. And we do believe his spirit is here inside the jail. And so for us, it on a routine basis, I mean, daily, we will hear doors slamming upstairs, footsteps. Um, whistling seems to be an interesting phenomenon that we've really started to capture here. Um, you know, we'll just be sitting here at the desk working and something will whistle behind us, even though we're the only people here. And um, so, you know, it, it, there, is, there is a lot of just trauma and violence and it's 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 not really a happy place most people that are in a jail or prison aren't there because they're they're in a happy state in their life um so you have all of that energy and for me i really believe it just permeates into the walls um we have a lot of residuals here um at night you'll hear footsteps just pacing upstairs on the third floor which was maximum security um and and they're they're residual to us because we'll be standing there and you'll hear them and we'll say hello hello is anybody there and they just keep on walking like they don't even hear us um, but then we have intelligence um, we will uh, be upstairs asking questions and uh, we'll get intelligent responses upstairs on the second and the third floor as well so for me I love jails I love prisons um, they're probably to me the best investigations that we've gone on oh yeah for sure and my fiance tells me stories too like she'll be walking down a I don't know what you call it, a corridor I guess and mm -hmm. she'd hear a door slam shut and there's no one there and uh voices talking to her but there's no one wherever she's located at the time and mm -hmm. uh like so she yeah she tells me all about her jail ghost experiences so <laughs> I def there's definitely something going on and I think a lot of ghosts like you said are um when they have like a trauma based death it seems like they seem to hang around a lot more than if they go peacefully so mm -hmm. yeah she she's always talking about uh inmates on suicide watch and <laughs> all that stuff and then of course on tough her jail isn't that bad as far as like inmate on inmate violence but mm -hmm. there's obviously prisons where you know people get killed and <laughs> So, yeah, definitely um, would breed that type of environment. Yeah, and to your point, I really, I, th I think it does. Like I said, um, it, it's almost like it, it just kind of permeates. Um, you know, there's uh, certain things that have happened, at, le at least here in this jail, and I'm sure in other jails across the country, um, we've had the suicides. We've had people that self-harm, right, that uh, that want to just go out for to try to get out for a day to go to the hospital. Um, here, there was inmate violence um, simply because they had no exercise yard or any outside exposure um, until until 1996, when an outside rec yard, a small one, was was um, put out and constructed in the back. Um, but up until that time, you know, 24 hours a day, their jail cell was their environment. And so it, to me, you know, jails and prisons, to your point, are really just a, this hotbed of paranormal activity simply for that reason. Uh, you know, we've investigated Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary, which is about 45 minutes from here um, in Petros, Tennessee. We've been there a couple of times, and that's a great place to investigate because we have both residual and intelligent hauntings there. Uh, we captured footsteps, door slamming. Uh, at the same time, we were capturing voices that were telling us, hey, I'm here, or I'm behind you, or I warned you, those sort of things. We've captured full-bodied apparitions um, on, on camera and on, uh, and on video. So there's a lot of things that happen in jails and prisons, and like I said, to me, it's, it's all fascinating. So when you go out with your team, um, is it just you and your sisters or do you have other people that go with you? <laughs> 
Well, we started in 2013 as a team of five. So myself, my twin sister, our younger sister, and two female family friends. And um, our first couple of years, we were that team of five. Everywhere that we went, you know, there were the five of us that would go. Really just then, you know, through a series of life events and COVID and all of that, um, we it, it's just easier travel and logistic-wise to allow Jenny, my twin, um, Jenny and I, to really do the, the primary investigations for the team. Now, the others will join when they can. Um, but you know, one got a new job and moved to Colorado, one had a grandbaby. So it's just one of those things that life just kind of plays a role in this as well. So primarily for the last two years, it's been Jenny and myself. So when you go out to do these investigations, what kind of like tools and equipment and stuff do you use? Because people might not, people listening might not know like all the different terminology and all the equipment. So what kind of stuff do you guys use to, I've heard of like dowsing rods, I think is one mm -hmm. and some other stuff. So just mm -hmm. interesting to hear what people use. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Absolutely. So the first thing for us, when we go on an investigation, we go in with the mindset of actually trying to debunk the location first. And by that, I mean, we go in for a day tour before our investigation, and we'll look at all of the things that environmentally we feel could influence the investigation. So we look for street lights, we look for traffic patterns, for airline patterns, trains nearby, dogs nearby, kids nearby, anything like that, that during our investigation, if we hear those things, we can say, okay, we think it's this rather than something paranormal. So we, the, from the very get-go, we go in with a scientific mindset mindset of really trying to disprove things first. Um, and then we also take notes on where we want to leave stationary equipment when we do the nighttime investigation. So when we go in and do the nighttime investigation, we set up uh, static uh, or stationary voice recorders as well as stationary night vision video cameras. The reason we do that is because we want eyes and ears on as much of the location as we can. So even if we're not in a particular room or in a particular hallway, we have night vision video cameras and voice recorders recording in those hallways or rooms. Um, and so then we set all of that up. We all have voice recorders on us as well. We have body cameras, um, night vision body cameras that really give us a timestamp of where everybody is during the investigation. So if say a, a, we capture a noise in a hallway at 10 o'clock at night, I will go back and cross-reference where everybody is based on those body cameras and make sure it's not one of us causing that noise or that anomaly. So we have that. Um, we Then we have pieces of equipment that we call our, our handheld equipment that we'll take with us. The first thing that we have are what we call K2 meters. And these were essentially created for electricians to find electrical outlets or electrical circuits in a room. Um, and basically they're radio or um, uh, electronic frequency meters. Um, uh, so they measure electromagnetic energy. And so the idea is that if you believe that spirits are made up of energy, that, <clears throat> excuse me, that if there's no energy or power in a location, yet something acts upon these pieces of equipment, then that's something that we can say, okay, th there may be a spirit acting on that. Um, so we have K2 meters that we take with us. Um, we have another device called a REM pod, which is a proximity meter as well. It has an alarm system. It also me measures temperature variations. So again, the idea being if a spirit approaches it or energy approaches it, it will alarm and indicate that something is acting on it. Um, we have um, a camera called an SLS camera. And generally speaking, it is a modified camera that has an algorithm on it that when you sweep it around a room, it looks like if it perceives a human in the room, it puts it as a stick figure on the screen. Um, so the idea being that even if nothing is in the room, if the camera perceives a human in the room or a spirit in the room, it will display it as a stick figure on the screen. Uh, we have a device called a spirit box, which generally speaking is an AM FM radio that's been modified to very quickly sweep through frequencies. So when you turn it on and, and start the sweep, what we call the sweep rate, it sounds like as it's running through these frequencies, the idea is that spirits can use the white noise to communicate with us. So essentially speaking through the static and, um, 
So we use that in, let's see, um, flashlights. We use flashlights for various experiments. Um, And then we also pride ourselves on taking what we call trigger items. So these are items that we talk about and we take with us and in some cases create um, to take into a locations to get a spirit to communicate with us. So for example, when we go into a jail or a prison, we'll take things like cigarettes, um, whiskey, uh, water, something like that, again, to say, you know, these are for you, and we're going to leave them for you, will you communicate with us because of that? Um, Like, for example, when we went into uh, West Virginia State Penitentiary, there was an inmate there, very bad guy, his name was Red Snyder, he was the leader of the Aryan Brotherhood, Um, just, uh, he was in there for murder, he was in solitary confinement, and his two vices in life were tobacco and watching Days of Our Lives. So every day they'd wheel a television in, they'd let him watch Days of Our Lives, and then they'd wheel a television away. So he actually ended up getting killed in prison, and I think 1993 is when he was killed. Anyway, so what we did is we downloaded an episode of Days of Our Lives on our laptop, took it into his cell, and said, okay, this is for you, we're going to leave it run, and you watch it, and we'll be back later. So when we came back... Um, the, the episode had ended and the battery on the laptop had drained and we walked in and we said, did you see what you, what we left for you? And he said, yes, we got over a voice saying yes. Um, so we, we take trigger items like that as well. And, um, so that really kind of rounds out some of the equipment that we have. Yeah. And I was going to ask about the whole, um, I think it's called EVP. Mm -hmm. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, and like you said, you trapped voices and stuff like that on video and um yeah i first heard about that there was a movie back in the i don't know 90s early 2000s and um it was they were still using vhs tapes because they were still a thing and uh it was all about the evp phenomenon so you have captured um like voices on film or audio equipment Oh, yeah, absolutely. So an EVP stands for electronic voice phenomena. And essentially what that is, it's it's ca- the capturing of a voice or a disembodied voice um, on a piece of electronic equipment. And in some of these cases, you can hear them in the moment and some and some we don't hear in the moment. But when we go back and we listen to our voice recorders, we found that we've captured something. Um, for example, my sister and I, uh, about three, no, about four weeks ago, we investigated the USS North Carolina in uh, in North Carolina. It's a battleship. And um, we were reco- obviously recording. And as we're walking through this bulkhead, um, I step over. And I turn around and I say, hey, we're going to look at Jenny and I say, we're going to go in here. So I turn to the left and as, as she's stepping over the bulkhead, we captured a man's voice saying, watch your arm. And she and I are the only two people on the entire ship. And yet we capture this male voice saying, watch your arm. Now, we didn't hear it in the moment. But when I went back, when I was going through and listening to that audio, it's clearly a male's voice. Um, Another example would be when we investigated the Grand Old Lady Hotel, which is located in Balsam, North Carolina. Now, this is a three-story hotel. It was built in 1905 as part of the railroad system. And it's a grand hotel. Like I said, it's got three stories. It's got 100 guest rooms, a big ballroom, um, a great big kitchen. Uh, It's just a really ornate hotel. And so when we were there, we were there for an entire weekend, and we had the complete run of the hotel. We were the only people on the property for that weekend. And so it was myself, my twin sister, Jenny, and Miranda from Ghost Biker Explorations. And so on Saturday night, we decided to sleep in the a room on the third floor, which was a suite that essentially had two rooms, right? There was an interior room and an exterior room, and only the exterior room had a door into the hallway. So <clears throat> we had the door closed, and we had a, a night vision video camera on the outside of the door and a night vision video camera on the inside of the door. So you see Miranda in that, that room. You see her get into bed, and you hear us say goodnight. And about 15 minutes later... A voice outside the door, a male's voice, says, please don't go. 
it's extremely loud. And Miranda said, did y'all hear that? And I said, yes. And she said, what did that sound like? And I said, there's a man outside our door. And she said, she said, yeah, that's what I thought too. Um, so that's an example of us hearing it in the moment. And we actually captured it on everything that was recording in that area. Um, but there was nobody there. Because you can see, obviously, from the two cameras that nothing approaches that door. And we had complete control of that hotel. Like I said, there was nobody else on the property that night. Yeah, I like how you guys go about it in like, a, I don't want to say scientific way, but like you try to go about it without making it like fabricated or like, you know, how you see on the TV shows, like they see something or they don't even see anything and they're like, oh my gosh, and they run away and you're <laughs> like, I didn't even see anything. Why are you running? And <laughs> But I like how you guys come at it. Like we want to make sure this is correct and that mm -hmm. uh, what we're experiencing is real and not, you know, something to boost, you know, our ratings or <laughs> to like, you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. I like and, and how I, you guys do that. Well, I, I, Jeremiah, I appreciate you saying that. Uh, and that's really one of the things that, you know, when we started doing this uh, in 2013, we really wanted to try to the best of our ability to elevate paranormal investigations into a more professional realm. Um, you know, we're still obviously seen as a subculture, but we wanted to say, okay, we're going to be very upfront with what we do and how we do it. And we do take a scientific approach because, you know, we feel that we want to really make sure that the conversation about paranormal investigations is one that is more scientific, right? Not just this, you know, oh, I feel something or it's a cold spot because that doesn't relate to an audience, right? An audience can't feel a cold spot. But if I say I feel a cold spot and I'm getting an EVP and I'm getting indications that there's energy here, that's a little bit different, right? That That's something that we can translate to our audience. And I understand that for television, there does have to be a sense of sensationalism, right? Those TV shows, they ha their entire reason for being is to build an audience. But for us, we want to, to show that this is what we feel a real investigation is. It's it's not this instantaneous gratification, right? We're sitting in a location for sometimes 24 to 48 hours, and we're literally just talking to the air trying to get some type of a response. Um, and And... Another thing that we don't do is we don't monetize. Uh, have people ask why we don't monetize our YouTube channel, and it's for that very reason, right? I don't want somebody to come back and say, "Well, you're just presenting this, this, you know, this thing, um, or these voices. You're making it up to get more hits, to get more money." And we don't do that, right? We don't monetize for that very reason. I don't want to give the appearance that we're putting this out there just to get hits or just to get subscribers or money. Um, what we do is really, as I said before, want to highlight these historical locations for preservation purposes and then say, okay, while we were there in this very interesting historical location, we captured these things that we couldn't explain in the moment. Yeah, I like that. I like that approach. And that's what I try to, well, I know my show covers various topics, but I try to come at it like I'm not preaching to anybody. I'm not trying to tell you what to believe. I just mm -hmm. want my guests to present what they know. And then it's up to the person listening to decide, you know, what they want to take from it and what they want to do. And I always put links for everything. So if they want to go check it out for themselves, they can. And so I like that approach. Definitely. So let's get into some more places that you've been, because I wrote some down here sure. um, that really interested me. Mm -hmm. And the one was the Axe House. Yeah, the Velisca Axe one? Murder House. Mm -hmm. Yeah, can you uh, kind of explain like what that was about and what you experienced? Sure, absolutely. So um, the Velisca Axe Murder House is located in Velisca, Iowa, and this was the scene of the 1912 murders, the axe murders of an of an entire family, the Moore family. Um, so uh, what happened very quickly to summarize the uh, the story is in 1912 there was a family that owned the farmhouse, the Moore family. So it was uh, Josiah Moore and his wife Sarah, and then they had four four kids. And this night um, of the murders, they actually had two other kids staying over. There was a church function that they had attended, and there was two girls staying over as well. 
um, Ina and, and Lena Stillinger. And so they had come back from this family function and they had all gone to bed and apparently a man had been hiding in the attic that they didn't know about. And so during the night he snuck out of the attic and he ended up killing Josiah and Sarah Moore as they slept in their beds. He killed them with an ax. He basically mutilated their faces. And then he went and killed the six kids. And um, so after he killed them, he did some strange things. He covered the mirrors in the house. Um, he washed his hands in the kitchen, but he left the blood there. Um, he also put a slab of bacon on the table and he smoked some cigarettes and then he left. He left the axe there as well. So they, they did find the axe and then he left and it's still an unsolved murder. Nobody knows who committed this heinous crime against his family. And, um, so the reports obviously have been since the murders that the house is haunted. And so when we went, um, it we, there was five of us. And if you see the house on television shows and such, it looks a little bit larger than it is. We're talking a very small country farmhouse in the middle of Iowa. And so when we did the investigation, um, even though there were five of us, we only went in as a subset. So two of us would go in or three of us would go in because we felt five was just too much to have in the in the house at the same time. And so we uh, we went about our routine. We set up our stationary voice recorders. We set up our, our night vision video cameras. And then we went in and we started what we call EVP sessions. Basically, we go in and we sit down, we ask questions, and we try to get responses. And so we had several things that we couldn't explain. There was one instance where um, uh, Kara and Kim were walking up the stairs to the second floor, and we had a voice recorder in the attic. And as you, as you hear them walking up the stairs, a man's voice in the attic says, downstairs where the girls are sleeping. And so two things. One, there were no men in the house, so I'm not sure where that voice came from. And two, Ina and Lena Stillinger were killed downstairs in the bedroom downstairs. They were the, they were the only two downstairs. So that was kind of interesting. So it's, it, to me, it was almost like a residual saying downstairs where the girls were sleeping. So that was kind of interesting. Um, and then there was one instance where Jenny and Michelle were in the kids' room where the four more, more children were killed. And so they're in the room and they're sitting down on the floor and they're asking questions. And when they're done, they stand up and Michelle kind of grabs, you see her on the camera, grab her forehead. And she said, oh, when I, when I stood up, my head just started hurting. And Jenny's like, okay, let's get you outside. Let's get you some water. And as they leave the room, we captured a child's voice saying, I didn't do that. Kind of like I didn't give her the headache. Um, which was kind of interesting uh, as well. And then um, we had some very interesting K2 hits, what we call K2 hits, um, which indicated that some type of energy was acting on our K2 meters um, that we can't explain. It was actually very intelligent because um, we have one gray meter and one black meter. And we were saying, okay, can you just go to the black one and that one would light up? Can you just go to the gray one and that one light up? And so through a series of different questions, um, we, we think we we're talking to the spirit of Sarah more, which was the mother. And um, so for us, it was a great investigation. We had a great time going out to, uh, to Iowa to investigate that location and really just to be in that, that house where so much tragedy had occurred. Yeah, that sounds like a brutal story, and mm -hmm. unfortunately, they didn't find who did it, because <laughs> um, that would, yeah, that's pretty bad. There was a kid, I don't know how old he was, I think he was like 18 or 19, uh, this was a long time ago, when I was living in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and uh, Christmas morning, or was it Christmas Eve morning, one of those mornings, he uh, killed his whole family, and uh, then they, they caught him though, and ended up going to the prison. And uh, I knew someone that worked at the Lancaster prison and they said like, that kid was such a, like a hole. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you'd have to be. Yeah. So <clears throat> yeah, I can only imagine what kind of trauma would happen that would keep, you know, the ghosts and residual stuff there and. Mm -hmm. The fact that you get these voices and male voices and they're, it's a full female team. So, I mean, how do you explain that, you know? And, exactly. Uh, and then, yeah, just uh, it's pretty incredible. I like hearing, I mean, I don't like that people died, but I like the hearing the stories and uh, mm -hmm. things that were actually 
you know, caught instead of, you know, some of these, I hate to rag on all these shows all the time, but like where they'll be looking at something and there's absolutely nothing going on and they just like get scared and run or whatever. And it's like, (laughs) what the heck? (laughs) Right. But yeah, to actually have like real evidence is, Mm -hmm. is definitely a plus. So -hmm. then, um, I have here, and I hope I pronounce it correctly, the mm-hmm. Lizzie Bourdain. The Lizzie Borden house. Or yep. Borden house. Yeah, Lizzie Borden. Um, <clears throat> so this this house, again, this was on our bucket list for a while. This was um, in Fall Rivers, Massachusetts, and this is the site of the 1892 murders of Andrew and Abby Borden. And so the story is that Lizzie Borden and uh, and her sister, they lived with their dad, Andrew, and their stepmother, uh, Abby, in this house in Fall Rivers. And in, in, 19, in 1892, um, both Andrew and Abby were bludgeoned to death, again, with an axe. Um, Andrew was hit in the face, I think, 16 times, and Abby was hit in the face 13 times. Um, now, the interesting thing about this is Lizzie Borden was actually in the house, and so they arrested her for the murder. She was 32 at the time. They arrested her for the murders, and um, and she was actually, the next year in uh, 1893, she was acquitted. She was found not guilty. Um, the jury was of 12, 12 men, and basically they said, we don't believe a woman would be capable of doing something like this. And so there's a lot of intricacies to the story. Um, you know, there's 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 controversy about whether um, the dad was molesting her and just different things like that, um, whether she wanted his inheritance. That was another conspiracy theory. But long story short, she was um, she was found guilty or she was found innocent of committing those murders and it's still an unsolved murder. So again, since 1892, this house has had reports of paranormal activity. Um, later on, um, after 1892, there was a neighbor that had a couple of kids that died in a tragic accident in a well behind their house. So the kids are said to inhabit the Lizzie Borden house as well. So when we investigated. There were five of us, again, on this investigation. And um, as soon as we start an investigation, we have our voice recorders running. So even when we're pulling luggage out of the car or equipment out of the car to bring it into the house, if, if we're in the house, we have a voice recorder running because we want to make sure we get everything that we can, right? So we were still in the process of setting up our equipment, and there were three of us upstairs, and Jenny and, and Kara were sitting in the parlor where Andrew Borden's body was found. And so they're just sitting there talking about the day and kind of some different things. And so then they start getting on uh, talking about the difference between the Velisca Axe Murder House, which we had investigated prior, and the Lizzie Borden House. And so during that conversation, Kara says, either way, being axed to death would be a horrible way to die. And as soon as she said that, a male's voice on the voice recorder said, it was. There was no man in the house, um, and yet it seemed like this guy was interjecting into the conversation saying, yeah, it was a horrible way to die. We have no explanation for that. Um, later on during the night, we captured um, children giggling when we were upstairs in the th- on the third floor, uh, in the third floor attic area. Um, we captured some children giggling, and some of our devices started indicating that there was energy acting upon it when none of us were around that device, so that was kind of interesting. Um, we were all in a, the third floor room where the maid, Bridget Sullivan, who was the maid to the, the Bordens, that's where, where her room was on the third floor. So we were all five of us in that room and we had the door shut. And so we were just asking questions again. And um, Miranda had her K2 meter and she put it down on the floor. And as she's putting it down on the floor, she said, here's another tool for you to play with. And as she did that, a man's voice in the hallway said, ignore them. It was so loud. It said, ignore them. And we all heard it. And Jenny, who was standing by the door, she whipped the door open to look out to make sure that, you know, nobody had come into the house. And of course they hadn't. And we captured it on uh, the voice recorders as well. Uh, So again, a very interesting location because we were capturing so many different things, both intelligent and um and what we call residual so for us the lizzie borden house was a great investigation yeah definitely interesting and makes you wonder and i know if i was there i would 
probably have ran out because that was <laughs> I get scared easily. So Aww. I would have. If I would have heard some guy yelling, like, get out or something or ignore them, I'd be like, okay, it's time to go. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for us, it, it really is fascinating. Now, I can honestly say we've had moments where we've been startled. We have moments of, of trepidation, obviously. But, you know, for us, it's just so fascinating that, you know, we're, we're communicating with energy, right? We're communicating with a spirit. And so for us, that's why we're there. And it, it really na- makes no point to run out. Um, like I said, we, we've had those moments where it's fight or flight and you kind of stand there and your, your hearing gets really acute, but, but then you're like, okay, this is why we're here. This is what we're here for. And so for us, it's absolutely fascinating to try to get those responses and, and see if we can come up with an explanation for them. So you don't think that, um, the ghosts or spirits can actually like hurt anybody. They're kind of just there. I, I do believe that there's instances where if you provoke or you go in with what I call the wrong intentions, i.e. you're there to really grandize um, uh, your investigation or, again, provoke a spirit, I do think that there's times where you can get assaulted, i.e. scratched or something like that. I do, I do believe that's possible. Now, I can say for us... We've never had that happen. Um, we've never gone into a, a location and has and have had you know anything happen to us where we have felt threatened or anything malicious, malicious or malevolent towards us. Um, there have been locations where we feel something that's darker. Uh, mostly that happens in prisons for us. And it, not, I'm not saying darker as in demonic. I'm saying darker as in this guy was a jerk in life and he's a jerk in death. So we're just going to let him go and do his thing. Um, but we've never had anything like that where we've been physically assaulted. Now, we will go into locations and say, you're not allowed to touch us unless we give you permission to do so. And so going back to the Exchange Hotel, when we were trying to communicate with the, the child, Jeremiah, I said, you know, I'm, can you give me a high five? I want you to touch me, touch me, you know, give me a high five, pull my pant leg. And we have had things happen when we invite that. Um, but we've never, like I said, had anything that uh, has been threatening or physically assaulting towards us. Okay, so yeah, you haven't um, encountered. Now, do you think, um, do you think like demons are like separate from like spirit and ghosts? Like, I don't know if you get into that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. or like exorcisms or any of that stuff, <laughs> but like... There's got to be evil side to mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. Um, what's your take on that? So when we go to our investigations, what we're attempting to communicate with are those spirits that had a human existence, right? They were born, they lived, they died, and for some reason, they're stuck where they're at. Um, those three theories that I mentioned earlier. I, I do believe there are demons, but I don't believe a demon had a human existence. To me, a, a demon is a representation of the evil of the good and evil in the world. They never had that human existence, but they can exist. Um, and th- there are moments where I think you can provoke that, that demon entity. Uh, but for us, we've never attempted to do that. Uh, and we've never experienced anything that I felt is demonic. I mean, we've gone to some of the most reportedly haunted locations in the country, and not once have we felt anything that is malicious or demonic. But again, we don't go in looking for that. When we go into a location, the first thing that we do is we set our intentions and we say, listen, we're here to tell your story. We're not here to harm you. We're not here to provoke you. We're not here to threaten you in any way. We're here to respect your location and we're here to respect you. All we want to do is communicate and tell your story. Um, and I think because we go in with that level of respect for both the location and the spirits, we kind of get that respect in return. We get communication back. We get instances where, you know, we're not harmed or, or physically threatened in any way. And I, I think it, it really go, it goes back to the intention level that we set. Um, now, if, if there is a location that we come across um, in the future that has something that we would consider demonic you know, that's fine. We will leave that space. And we have um, friends in uh, that are demonologists that we can call, um, or priests that we can call, and they can help us with that that location or that case. But for us, that's really something that we don't even delve delve into. Yeah, that's probably a good thing. And I always ask my uh, ghosts or paranormal guests, like, 
what uh, they view for like Ouija boards and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. a lot of them say, you know, don't really mess with it if you don't really know what you're doing. Because a lot of people mm-hmm. don't know what the heck they're doing. And then they could invite like bad spirits or bad energy. And <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And and that's something that we don't use. Um, not so much that I think we would open a portal or something like that, but there it, it's, it's really the, um, the connotation behind a Ouija board, right? Most people, as soon as you say Ouija board, they automatically think in their minds, demons, portals, evil. Um, and, and so that's just one tool that we've never utilized simply because of the connotation behind it. But, um, you know, to your point, I think any tool that if you use in a manner that um, that is not intended for, or you go in with the intention of trying to provoke something um, or conjure something that, that you shouldn't be dealing with, I think anything that you take in there could could have that same result where you get the re- really the response that you're looking for, right? So... Oh, yeah, definitely. All right, so one last uh, investigation that I wanted to hear from you about, uh, mm-hmm. and then we'll wrap it up. But um, And I hope I get the names right, too. Sure. Ma and Fred Barker. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and their so story the- and their th- your experience with it. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So I absolutely love this story. Um, so this, uh, the Ma Barker house was the site of the 1935 shootout between Ma and Fred Barker, who were two members of the Barker Carpus gang and members of the FBI. Um, so kind of how this came about is you've got Ma Barker, who is um, the matriarch of the, the Barker Carpus gang, who was a really, it was a, it was a really prolific gang um, in the 1920s and 1930s. In fact, the Ma, the, the Barker gang, uh, actually called the Barker Carpus gang, a lot, amassed more money than all of the other gangs of the 1920s, 1930s combined. That's how prolific they were. Um, so you have the Great Depression from 1929 to 1939, coupled with Prohibition from 1920 to 1933. And this is really giving gangs um, uh, the rise in America. So Long story short, you've got J. Edgar Hoover, who comes to power and, and, and head of the FBI in 1924, and um, he decides to go after the Barker Carpus gang because they escalate into kidnapping, which is a federal offense. So they, they kidnap two guys um, in 1934, um, William Hamm and Edward Bremer, and so they get the reward money for them, and then the gang splits. And when they split, they split. They split up, they split the money, and then they split themselves. And so Ma Barker and one of her sons, Fred, go down to Central Florida to this little, literally one one stoplight town called Oklawaha, which is in Marion County. And uh, so they hide out in this house, which was belonged to a guy by the name of, of, uh, of Carson, um, the Carson family. And uh, so they hide out in this house in 1934, November of 1934. In January of 1935, J. Edgar Hoover tracks them down to the house. A gun battle ensues on the morning of January 16th, 1935. And it culminates with Ma and Fred Barker being killed inside the upstairs room of this house. So after they were killed, um, uh, Carson Bradford and his family, they maintain the house as it was during that shootout. So when you go in today, there's bullet holes all in the walls. The sconces are the same. The doors are the same. The floors are the same. Everything is maintained in this house as it was in 1935, everything but the windows. I mean, the furniture, there's furniture with bullet holes that you can line up to bullet holes in the wall, right? And so... Um, the reason we knew about this house is because um, it, it, we were born in Marion County, and my grandparents lived about four miles from the house. So every time we'd visit Nana and Granddaddy and we'd go into Oklahoma, they'd say, you know, that's where Ma and Fred Barker were killed. So in 2016... Uh, Carson Bradford's family decided they were going to sell the house. They were going to sell the land. And the new owners of the land did not want the house. They were going to demolish it. And so Marion County, Florida, decided that they were going to take the house, take possession of the house, and move it um, to a new location. So basically they put it on a barge and they floated it across Lake Weir about two and a half miles away and put it on 40 acres in a state park. So that's where it sits today. So it's 40 acres in the middle of pretty much nowhere. So there's no light pollution. There's no noise pollution or anything like that. 
So when we asked Marion County if we could investigate this house, we were the first paranormal investigation team to be allowed access to the Ma Barker house. So when we went in, it was a two-part investigation. And what I wanted to do with the first part was I wanted to have equipment in the house on the anniversary of the shootout. So what we did is on January 15th, we put all of the stationary equipment in the house, voice recorders, um, uh, stationary night vision video cameras, handheld equipment that we had. We left K2 meters. We left all of that in the house on January 15th, the night of, and then we left. We locked the house and we left. And so all of that equipment ran to encompass the morning of January 16th, which would have been the 83rd anniversary of the shootout. And so when we went back and listened to the audio and video that we captured, we had some interesting things that we couldn't explain. Um, we had the sound of chairs being drug across the floor. We had the sound of doors being slammed. Um, we had a man's voice saying, get out. Um, we had some different um, things that sounded like maybe like a ball rolling or something like that or a marble rolling. Um, but one of the most interesting things that we captured, again, there's nobody in the house. One of the most interesting things that we captured was at about 5.30 in the morning, which is when the shootout happened or started, at about 5.30 in the morning, we captured two voices on the voice recorder in the room where Ma and Fred's body were found. The first voice said, Freddie. The second voice said, yeah, Ma. The first one said, get ready. And I, and I believe that's a residual haunting. I believe that's actually what was said in that room 83 years ago before the shootout happened. So we got all of that. And so then about two weeks later, Jenny and I went into the house and we were the only two people in the house. Um, and so we we're using some various pieces of equipment. And one of the things that we were using was the spirit box, that AM FM radio that I told you about earlier. And so, again, this house sits in the middle of about 40 acres. There, This radio is very small. There's no radio stations that are in the area that this thing could pick up, right? So we turned on the AM FM radio and we started sweeping and you hear that static. And I said, what happened in this room? And through the spirit box, they said, we got the, the phrase, they murdered us, we the ones dead. Now, think about that for just a second. This, this spirit box is going through frequencies at an eighth of a second. It's changing to another frequency. But yet we got this full phrase that came through this spirit box. Um, and theoretically, that should not happen right? So what are the odds that you have all of these stations lining up to give me the phrase, they murdered us, we the ones dead. Um, so that was extremely interesting to us. And we captured some other things on some of our equipment as well that night. Um, but for me, I mean, the Ma Barker house is one of those, the most fascinating investigations that we've been a part of. Yeah, I kind of want to go check it out now just to go back <laughs> in time a little bit, because mm -hmm. if everything's left the same and the bullet holes and everything it's like the police are like oh we're done investigating it's it's uh, uh left alone after that so mm -hmm. yeah and, and that's really what it was and i'm really glad that the that carson bradford's family and, and carson bradford himself had the the foresight to just maintain it like that right so i mean they hung up pictures and stuff to cover the bullet holes but i mean you walk up the stairs and and you see them um there's there's rocking chairs and and furniture and um uh trunks uh, like vintage uh um, clothing trunks that when you open the lid, I mean, you see the bullet holes through and you can line it up to the bullet holes in the wall. It's, it's pretty wild. Yeah, that is uh, very interesting. And uh, that's in Florida, you said? Mm -hmm. Yeah, in central in Marion County, Florida. Yep. Dang, but you probably need a permit or something to or permission to go on the property. Uh, you need to call Marion County um, uh, Park and Rec and uh, they have tours. Uh, in fact, I was a dose in there for about eight months after our, our second investigation. So I led day tours and such in there, um, really telling the, the the history as well as the paranormal um, about the house. But uh, yeah, so you just call them and make an appointment and you, you can take a tour. Yeah, I might have to do that, actually. <laughs> uh, it sounds so interesting. And I love I love history, mostly like ancient history, but like even stories like this where um it wasn't too too long ago but mm -hmm. like it's just a rich history story like the fact that they moved the house and the fact that everything's left the same like i love that kind of stuff oh you and me it's both 
Yeah. And, and that was one of the things that, that we wanted to really delve into because, um, you know, I wanted to see if the spirits moved with the house and, uh, and, and, and not stayed with the land. And they did, right? Ma and Fred, I do believe that their spirits moved with the house. And the reason being is they had no ties to the land, right? They, they were nomadic. They were gangsters. They were nomadic in life. And so for me, why not stay with the, the location where you died? Um, and, and so that's the reason why. Because I have a lot of people asking, you know, why didn't you investigate the land, the actual property? One, I couldn't get onto it because the owner said no. Um, but for me, they 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 wouldn't be with the land, right? They they had no ties to it. So I was pretty sure that if anything was going to be haunted, it was going to be the house. Oh yeah, definitely. It's kind of like if you're a nomad, you don't care about where you are at. You're just hopping around. And then other people, it's like if they were born and raised and stayed where they grew up, then they're tied to the land because it's familiar and mm-hmm. uh you know you get people that end up moving back to the, where they were born and raised because they just like the it's just something about it that mm-hmm. <laughs> just the experience of growing up so yeah i definitely agree uh, with you there so i'll ask one more question and that is if you could go and there's no restrictions no nothing what would your next uh like dream investigation be? (laughs) Oh, I'd love to go international. Um, I would love to get over to Ireland. There's a castle there called Leap Castle. That's definitely the the number one location on my bucket list. And really anywhere in in Europe, in London. Um, I've been there several times as a tourist, but not as a paranormal investigator. And, you know, I, I love American history. There's everything about American history fascinates me. But you know, obviously Europe has that longevity that we just don't have here. And so when you go into a, a castle or, um, you know, somewhere that is from the 19, from the 1600s or the 1500s, you know, that to me is absolutely fascinating. So getting over to Ireland, to England, um, to Europe in general, that would definitely be bucket list locations for me. Um, there's a plantation in uh, Australia called the Monte Cristo Plantation. Uh, again, that's a place I've been to as a tourist, but not as a paranormal investigator. It has a lot of haunting reports, so I'd love to get over there. And really just any place here in the U.S. that has uh, an interesting legend or lore, um, you know, someplace that we investigate, you know, even from, you know, small houses to jails to cemeteries, uh, all of it to me really is really fascinating. So, um, you know, for me, I, I always have voice recorders and K2 meters in my car just if, <laughs> if an imp- impromptu investigation occurs because it's just all of it is just fascinating. Oh, yeah. You never know when you might need to break them out and <laughs> exactly <laughs> take a look and i'm into the whole ufo phenomenon so like <laughs> it's kind of similar i guess in the fact that it could happen anywhere anytime <laughs> so a lot of people like to be prepared and try to have a their camera ready or something so they can capture it <laughs> mm-hmm. oh absolutely you have to be ready <laughs> yep so thank you for coming on and speaking with us we covered a lot of ground and very interesting stories and definitely um, like what you're doing. I hope you keep it up and uh, keep the scientific approach. Uh, Like I said, I don't like using that term, but in this instance, it's like, yeah, you're trying to make it as real as possible without, Mm -hmm. you know, fantasizing, I guess. And yeah, just keep up the good work and uh, definitely good to have you on. Well, thank you, Jeremiah. I I appreciate it.